drafting, but I want to start out um, by reading a passage, not from Aristotle, but from Spinoza. This is from the um, appendix to part one of the ethics. So it goes, because they, humans, find in and outside of themselves not a few means which contribute more than a little toward increasing their utility. For example, eyes for seeing, teeth for chewing, plants and animals for food, the sun for light, the sea for providing fish. It comes to pass that humans consider all natural things, every natural thing, to be means for their use. And because they know that these means were found by them, but not made by them, they hold this to be grounds for believing that there is someone else or something else who made them for their use. For when they consider things as means, they're unable to believe that these same things were self-generated, and from these means, which they're accustomed to make for themselves, they conclude that there is some guide or guides of nature, gifted with human freedom, who has attended to all things and has made all things for human use. So I'm not going to go in too much to what that's about, but um, I kind of want to keep that keep that kind of as a as a starting point. And I think that Aristotle and Spinoza are not necessarily kind of um, typical, um, typical kind of uh, thinkers that, that are tend to be thought of in the same breath, except as kind of in opposition to one another. Um, and Spinoza certainly, kind of in recent years, has become um, something of an inspiration, a kind of historical touchstone for thinking about the environment, including thinking about non-human animals. Um, but in some sense, kind of one of the one of the kind of implicit theses of what I want to argue um, is that there is a there is a kind of surprising affinity at least between certain aspects of their views um, okay so moving moving kind of straight into Aristotle um, it's a kind of basic presupposition or starting point uh, what I'm working through and what I want to say today that Aristotle has a view according to which certain beings have greater or lesser degrees of value, that they can be compared in some kind of normative or evaluative sense. Um, indeed, a kind of ranking of natural organisms is not only possible, it's not only conceptually coherent, but for a full understanding of the natural world, for a full cosmology, it's actually essential. Um, this raises a question, and it's an open question, it's sort of the one that's going to be the initial, the initial point of entry into this. And I have an argument for elsewhere for the fact that Aristotle does have such a ranking. I mean, he speaks in many passages about um, the fact that certain beings are more or less perfect, more or less good. There's some controversy about what grounds that, but for now I want to take it as kind of granted. And I can talk in the in the question period, in the discussion period, about what the kind of conceptual foundations of that of that natural hierarchy are. But right now, taking that as a presupposition, what I want to ask is what ethical consequences, what normative consequences um, a cosmological or natural hierarchy has. And what I want to argue is that despite the claim that certain beings, certain natural organisms um, are better than others, and that there is this ranking um, in the cosmos, a instrumental view of the natural world can't be straightforwardly um, derived from that. This notion that certain species are higher or lower doesn't entail or even necessarily ground um, a view on which the lower species um, 
exist for or even can be exploited as instruments for the benefit of the higher ones. Now, of course, things are going to be, you know, I'm going to talk about how these come apart. Um, so, but the basic overall thesis, the first thing I want to argue for is that the kind of natural hierarchy that exists in Aristotle is non-instrumental. And in fact, what I'm going to argue eventually is that it's compatible with fairly strict limits on um, interspecies exploitation and the exploitation of non-human nature generally. Um, so that's kind of the negative thesis. Um, this is, this is a view that these kind of things come apart, that the hierarchical view of the world and an instrumental view of the world um, can be separated from one another. Um, that, of course, doesn't entail anything about what sort of normative obligations humans might stand in to the rest of the natural world. It's a purely negative thesis. So once I argue for that, I want to suggest ways in which Aristotle's other, other aspects of Aristotle's work might generate a critical stance toward the exploitation of non-human nature. Um, and this is going to be found not in the um, natural philosophy or even the discussion of natural beings that we're going to talk about in the politics, but in um, Aristotle's account of human virtue and more specifically human pleasure. And there what we're going to find is there's a emphasis on moderation and not using things to excess that, if not directly, then seems to lend a kind of conceptual credence to um, limits on excessive consumption of, excessive consumption generally and also excessive consumption of non-human natural resources, including non-human animals and also including, in some sense, um, you know, non non-animal um, organisms and kind of perhaps even the biosphere moving moving a little bit further. Um, so before kind of diving into the kind of textual analysis and the argument, I want to say a little bit about the kind of methodology here. Because as I mentioned, I mean, this is kind of a textually historically based paper. Um, but the two sorts of inquiries that I've mentioned, first, this negative argument that Aristotle's kind of cosmological, hierarchical cosmology doesn't directly entail kind of a normative view. Um, it's quite separate, quite conceptually distinct from any kind of normative consequences that, you know, I'm arguing the germs of which at least can be found in Aristotle. So in some sense, um, this is a, you know, the kind of the, the language that I've been using to talk about this is it's a kind of dual track ethics of nature. On the one hand, we have an account of nature as such, nature for what it is for itself, what it means for a substance to be good. On the other hand, we have a critique of how humans should be, how humans should act. And that will have consequences for how humans should treat the natural world. Um, but they're not necessarily part of the same inquiry. And in some sense, I mean, Aristotle obviously um, thinks both of these things. So they come together in him, but for contemporary philosophical audiences, they do seem rather separable. They're not, they don't require one another. Um, in some sense, this seems like a kind of gap in Aristotelian thinking that the critique of excessive human consumption of 
possibly eating animals, possibly of um, environmental destruction, doesn't really have anything to do with um, the object of that exploitation itself. It's purely with reference to us and what is good for us. Um, this is this is a kind of criticism that gets um, launched against kind of certain contemporary so-called anthropocentric accounts um, of environmental ethics to this day. Um, and that's kind of I just want to I'm gonna that's, I'm gonna basically leave that out there. At the end, I'm going to say a few words about why rather than a um, defect of Aristotle's theory, there might actually be something powerful about this this kind of doubled, this dual track, as I call it, ethical, ethical view. Okay, so without any further ado, I'm gonna dive right into talking about the first passage on your handout, which is, I mean, I think that for thinking about Aristotle, certainly for thinking about Aristotle's view of the relationship between humans and non-human animals in a practical sense, but also I think we're thinking about humans, um, the ethical consequences of humans' place in the natural world more generally. Um, this is sort of like the passage that you know kind of has to be has to be addressed. Um, and sorry, oh yeah, what do I need to do? Okay, sorry. Yes. Um, I think you all have it, but it's the first one up there. Um, this is the same thing that you all have. Okay, so um, and what Aristotle is doing in in this chunk of text that, that I'm going to talk about for a little while, which is from the first book of the politics, seems completely opposite from what I've just been saying. It's He's saying precisely not just that humans um, do use animals and plants for their benefit and um, you know, derive some kind of value from the exploitation of such beings, but that the very nature of those beings is explained with reference to the benefit which they provide for humans, for us. Um, so this is obviously kind of quite contrary to what I've been saying. Um, what I want to argue is, I, I don't want to speculate about why Aristotle might have said this. I mean, typically, the way that people explain this, because I think there's a, a lot of people have thought that this seems very out of place for Aristotle, and indeed it is really the one place where he tries to ground a notion of human consumption in a kind of natural, in the quote-unquote natural order of things. Um, typically, this is explained um, by saying something like, Aristotle here is kind of just giving a um, kind of preliminary account of what most people think. And this doesn't really have to do with what his considered position is. Um, it is true that Aristotle often does give kind of, he, he lists or kind of articulates alternate and kind of popular conceptions or previous philosophical conceptions of the issues under discussion before going on to kind of figure out what's valuable in those and what isn't and kind of reject parts and develop his own view. Um, the problem with that line here is that he doesn't really go on to talk about um, the, the relationship, the ethical relationship between humans and non-human nature in the politics. So it's not clear what kind of role as a kind of uh, 
you know, the, the kind of in, in the ancient philosophical literature, it's the kind of term is that it's kind of laying out the phenomena as they're, as they're popularly conceived. I mean, in a very anachronistic, you might think of it as kind of like a literature review at the beginning of a social sciences paper, really. Like you're saying all the, all the stuff. Um, so he doesn't go on to really use this in that way. Um, he also seems to be presenting an argument for, um, for the claim that plants and animals exist for the sake of humans. Um, so it doesn't seem like this is just kind of like a, a kind of he's ventriloquizing someone else's or some kind of general general way of thinking. Um, what I'm going to argue is that this is incompatible with Aristotle's more considered views of how nature and natural substances work. Um, and I'm kind of going to leave out speculation as to why that might be. I mean, it may be that this is kind of like a residue from some earlier period, whatever. I'm not I'm not gonna talk about that. I am gonna say that this is there's a tension between these and this is this is really out of keeping with the Aristotelian um, worldview more generally. Um, okay, in order to do that obviously we need to look more closely at the passage itself. So I'm going to I'm going to do that. Um, let me read out the passage and kind of pause for emphasis on the on the sections that, that are kind of going to be particularly important um, so you can follow along. Such property, namely natural beings, appears given by nature itself to all, both immediately after they're first born and when they are mature. And indeed in generation, some of the animals provide so much food that's enough until the offspring are able to provide for themselves. For example, the vermiparous or the oviparous ones but the viviparous ones have food for their offsprings in themselves until a certain point, called milk. Thus, it's similarly clear that one ought to suppose that, once they're born, plants exist for the sake of animals, and the other animals for the sake of humans, the tame ones to eat and use, and most, if not all, of the wild ones for the sake of food and other benefits, so that clothes and other useful things come from them. If, then, nature never makes anything incomplete or in vain, it's necessary to suppose that nature has made all of them for the sake of human beings. So the key section here, this is all dealing with, it's taking food, nutrition, as a kind of case study for property. Um, the key claim is this, this notion, looking at the original source of food, um, the viviparous, this is animals that give live birth, so mammals, have food for their offsprings in themselves until a certain point called milk. And then he moves on to say that thus it's similarly clear, and one ought to suppose, um, that once they're born, plants and animals, other animals also exist for the sake of humans. So there's some kind of continuity that's posited between the initial sustenance in the form of, uh, of, of milk, of mother's milk, and then the later kind of nutrition that comes um, from, from plants and other sources. Um, and that's gonna be the kind of crucial inference that I wanna largely focus on. Um, okay, so this is a account of property that's being used in a, in a slightly um, idiosyncratic, at least for contemporary ear sense. Basically property is the kind of being used in a very general sense for that which belongs to that which belongs to people. And he's trying to argue for a naturalness for certain kinds of human property more generally. So he's trying to locate um, this as a kind of 
um, clear-cut case in which property, namely food sources, are natural, and then he's going to use that to argue for um, a certain class of human property in the more conventional sense that similarly exists by nature. Um, okay, so I've put two kind of presuppositions on your handout, the kind of cru crucial things that I want to <laughs> focus on. These are one and two um, in, with the indent. Um, so the first kind of assumption is that every living thing is born with some kind of natural source of nutrition. Um, in some cases, it involves the parent bringing food to the animals. In some cases, there's just kind of like the, um, there's enough there's enough kind of nutrition internally. And then in other cases, the one in which I want to focus, because it kind of it shows where something kind of goes wrong in the reasoning. Then the final case is where um, the case of lactation, of mammalian lactation, in which um, mother, the mother provides milk um, from its body for the offspring. Um, and then the second claim is will also the kind of be the be the kind of problematic one the connection both the connection between one and two and two itself why aristotle might think this um and whether this is kind of coherent with the broader picture of aristotelian natures is the idea that because the initial source of nutrition is natural whether that's in the form of milk or nutrition provided from from the outside by the parent um Therefore, the other sources of nutrition that kind of come to functionally stand in for that earlier source must themselves also be natural. Um, and the philosopher and classicist David Sedley kind of sums up what I think is probably an accurate reconstruction of the sort of view that Aristotle has to have um, that kind of grounds that, that assumption, which is that there's a kind of continuity, a functional continuity between um, milk, between between lactation, and then later on other sources of of sustenance. Um, in this particular case, we're talking about plants for non-human animals, and both plants and non-human animals for for humans. Um, so Sally says that given that the mother's milk exists by nature for the sake of her offspring, there's no grounds for denying that the same natural function applies to both. Um, to external food sources which take over the job of milk exactly where it left off. So there's this idea that you know, up to a certain point, um, however long that might be, that's going to vary by species, there is this natural source of um, nutrition in the form of milk, and then something else, namely eating other organisms, picks up where the job of milk left off. So if milk is natural, those other things must also be natural. Um, so we can ask sort of two sorts of questions. The first of which is, if this is true, um, is milk natural? And I'm going to argue that yes, it is. That's, that seems quite clear. But I think that looking at, and then we can ask about the inference itself. But even though I don't think that it will be terribly surprising to think that milk is both natural and functionally determined for the role it plays in sustenance and nutrition of newborns asking why that is what grounds the naturalness of milk um, 
will shed some light on the reason for which the later sources of nutrition cannot be natural and therefore cannot be for the sake of humans in the kind of robust sense. That is, they do not exist. Their existence, their generation um, is not explained with reference to the role they play um, for, for human beings. Um, okay, so in order to do that, we have to look um, at the kind of account of nature, and this comes from the, as kind of ancient philosophy people will know, um, the second book of Aristotle's Physics, which is devoted to the notion of nature. Um, and the basic idea of, he kind of starts out by distinguishing between things that exist by nature, things that have a nature, and things that don't. And the way that he does that, the way that Aristotle does that, is by um, distinguishing things that have what he calls a principle of motion and stationariness in themselves and things that don't. And he does this kind of by, so he gives this theoretical principle and then he enumerates things. So, for example, um, plants and animals have kind of a internal principle of growth and generation. They're, the way in which they develop is patterned internally, whereas non-natural things, the example that he gives in the passage on your handout is a bed, something that is a product of craft, um, does, doesn't have um, any kind of internal principle insofar as wood gets transformed into a bed. It happens on account of someone coming along and imposing um, form or kind of a different arrangement of the matter on it from the outside. Um, now, the question then is whether milk initially and then other sources of food satisfy that notion of having, being natural. And then we can ask, once we have that on the table, whether there's a kind of um, teleological relationship between other, other organisms and human beings, whether the natures of those organisms um, exist, it, is constituted such as to exist for their sake. Um, okay, so in the case of milk, it seems understood as kind of playing a functional role for, for, human, for infant human nutrition or for infant mammalian nutrition. It seems quite clear that that nutritive function is kind of part of what it means, and part of the explanation of what milk is. It is generated um, internally to, to the mother's body, but it is explained with reference in order to understand how milk comes into being and what it does, we have to think about the role it plays in nutrition. So that I'm going to kind of, um, I'm going to kind of uh, leave that part. And then I want to ask, like, is there an analogous, um, is there an analogous way in which we can think of other animals, which humans undoubtedly like gain benefit from, um, both in terms of eating, in terms of putting them to labor. Um, whatever, in which the explanation of how those animals both come to be and the way in which they develop is explained analogously to milk with reference to the role, the benefit they provide um, 
for human beings. And the, the kind of full version of this is much more detailed and kind of goes through the, the kind of technicalities of Aristotelian teleology, but I want to um, largely skip over that in order to kind of get the, the large-scale division on the table, um, and I'm happy to talk to anyone uh, who is interested in that kind of more specialized discussion. Um, and the basic kind of answer to that question I just posed um, is that, no, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of explanatory role for, um, for understanding the, the nature of um, the nature of non-human animals, the nature of plants. Um, in order to understand those, we don't need to make any reference to the benefit they provide for human beings. Um, and indeed, I mean, as a, as a kind of speculative side, there seems to be a kind of um, underappreciation in Aristotle, perhaps, um, for the way in which the um, like human action, human ingenuity, along the lines of, in, in um, for precisely an underappreciation, sorry, for human ingenuity in securing um, foodstuffs. <coughs> and so the kind of contention is that this is much more like the case of um, making a bed out of a pre-existing natural material than it is to just kind of like, um, milk, a supply of milk being there and having to <coughs> take it up. Um, partly this has to do with the way in which Aristotle views species. He doesn't have any kind of um, developmental or evolutionary account of species, so domesticated species um, on Aristotle's account um, aren't the kind of the result of any sort of interaction between humans and um, their, their environment. On our account, um, in some ways, on the evolutionary account, the nature of a domesticated species, the nature of um, domestic cattle, say, is actually going to have much more reference to the way in which we interact with them. Um, but even so, so there is this kind of like almost like with once you if you don't have an account of evolution, it does seem like there's almost this kind of like magical fit between the sorts of animals that we interact with on a daily basis. Um, and human needs, right? And that's, we know, we know now that that's kind of, there's a good historical reason for that. But even so, um, even with that kind of like almost, uh, that kind of like magical fit between these things, um, between these different species, it still doesn't explain why animals develop the way they do. Um, and to understand that, we have to recall that for Aristotle, or get on the table for Aristotle, that explanation of why natural processes happen in the way they do um, makes reference to the goodness, so it makes reference to a teleological final cause in the kind of traditional, in the traditional vocabulary. It makes reference to some good, but it more specifically makes reference to the good of the kind of organism in question. So when we say that, when we're trying to give an ex explanation of, you know, like why human beings have eyes, we're not going to give a purely kind of like um, explanation in terms of like the various, you know, chemical and um, physical properties of 
um, human embryology, we're going to say that we have eyes for seeing. And we're going to give these kind of functional explanations all the time. But Aristotle himself has a, he restricts himself in the physics, in the same book of the physics, in Physics 7, to saying that reference to goodness, explanation with reference to goodness, isn't a kind of absolute sense of goodness, but it's always in relation to the nature of the thing in question. And this is kind of a crucial um, restriction on what sorts of what sorts of references can be made in natural explanations. Um, and I think that a kind of intuitive way to see that without kind of going into the weeds of Aristotle's natural philosophy is to ask, so even in the case of domesticated animals, which have co-evolved um, with this reference to human beings, there's still a question about whether the benefit they provide for human beings is good for them, and whether that plays a role in how they develop looking into the future, right? So think of a domesticated pig, say, right? Um, the natural history of that species does have to do with um, with the way with the way in which human use has shaped a kind of pre-existing wild species, etc. The question that I want to ask, and is much more kind of Aristotelian spirit because it doesn't presuppose an evolutionary account, would be to ask, looking at the development of an individual pig, do we need to make reference to its role as in providing meat and leather to human beings in order to predict what is going to happen? <clears throat> and B, do we need to make reference to those roles in order to account what a good life for it will be. Um, and the answer seems quite clearly to be no. Um, indeed, a you know a pig, despite its natural history, is going to be better off um, you know, without being slaughtered by humans, even if it has evolved um, for complex reasons uh, by interacting with them. Um, Okay, I'm, I don't want to go into too much more detail. Um, this is this is obviously um, largely largely schematic, certainly in terms of kind of the exegesis um, of Aristotle. I want to kind of get get these things on the table. Um, and so, I mean, the basic. I think that this kind of gives a general sense of the sort of argument that I want to make about the lack of instrumental hierarchy according to Aristotle's considered position in natural philosophy. So I've kind of given a little rundown of certain natural philosophical principles. We've seen, I think, that um, they don't seem to fit very well with this view of the politics in which not only do humans benefit from the exploitation of non-human animals, but that benefit somehow explains what non-human animals are. And so my claim is just that on Aristotle's own account of how natural substances work, this cannot be. Um, I said earlier that this is a largely negative thesis, because this doesn't mean the fact that plants and animals, on Aristotle's own considered position, cannot be, as he, say, as he says, naturally for the sake of human beings, 
doesn't mean that we shouldn't use them as if they were. The fact that a pig or a cow doesn't have any kind of intrinsic relation to human benefit doesn't mean in itself that we shouldn't use them that way. And there's going to be a clear benefit to it. So this is the kind of, um, there's a separate, there, there's a kind of separation between the realm of the natural order of things, if we want to use that terminology, um, on the one hand, and then our ethical obligations on the other. So this is not going to directly, anything I've been saying, going to ground um, restrictions or critique of human consumption. Nevertheless, um, I think there is such a critique of human consumption to be found in Aristotle. And I'm going to spend a little bit less time talking about that, but I want to like kind of give an outline, um, some materials that we can use to generate um, serious doubts about the kind of unlimited use of non-human natural resources, both animals and other, um, other natural other parts of nature. Um, and so this is moving away from what those things are in themselves. This is not going to be grounded in the fact that non-human animals have a, there's something, there's a way in which life can go well or badly for them. Aristotle does think there is, but insofar as there's material for a critique of the way we treat them, it is not going to be located in that um, account of, of their good. It's going to be located in the account of what is good for us. And the crucial notions here, um, the crucial notion here is a sort of Aristotelian propensity toward moderation. Um, and of course, Aristotle is kind of famous, perhaps the kind of thing he's most famous for, certainly in his ethics, is this account of the mean, um, you know, that the virtuous course is kind of steering between an excess of some, like, you know, if you're too courageous, it's kind of brash and um, rash and dangerous. If you're too cowardly, that's not good. And the thing is to kind of like have just the right amount. Um, I think that there is a interesting connection to be drawn between the sort of moderation that I have in mind and I want to talk about briefly and that kind of um, that that kind of moderate path, that middle path. But it's not quite um, it's not quite uh, that that kind of canonical Aristotelian notion of the mean. Um, Rather, the conceptual resources that I want to draw on in Aristotle um, come first from, again, the politics, in fact, from the same section of the politics in which we saw this argument about um, the, the, natural, the naturalness of the human, the human use and the benefit which, which non-human animals provide. Um, but here he introduces the notion of a limit. And so the notion of basically, let me, uh, is it on here? Yeah, okay, great. So the basic initial notion that I wanna get on the table um, is this notion of a natural limit. And certain forms of property and things that we do with property have a boundary. And that boundary is set by the function that they play for human beings. Um, Aristotle uses this to generate a very, very strong critique of money-making, early forms of mercantilism, or you know, some people talk about early forms of capitalism. But the idea, and this also uh, kind of echoes certain strains in, in kind of Marx's thinking about money, um, 
But the idea that money, unlike these other forms of human activity, is aimed at the unlimited accumulation of some resource, um, Aristotle thinks is deeply problematic precisely because it doesn't have a boundary point beyond which it is problematic to go. There is no point at which, if you're thinking merely about quantitative increase in money, um, you can't go any further. And I think that sort of critique of finance, um, and I can talk exactly about the, the kind of details of that, but basically there's a, you know, and this is common in the ancient world, a very, very skeptical attitude toward financial activity reveals a sense in which um, all activity is bounded by particular aims. And more specifically, human activities are bounded by the aims of what a good human life is. Um, and so that notion of surpassing limits is not here applied to say that, OK, well, like excessive, um, excessive consumption is in itself bad. But I think we can sort of think about the ways in which surpassing, um, going beyond what is necessary for living well, for conducing to our own flourishing, is prima facie at least morally suspect. And I want to ask whether that might apply to, if not um, the consumption and exploitation of non-human animals and non-human nature more generally in all contexts, and at least in certain contexts, where that, is essentially, um, that has essentially become unnecessary for living the kind of full and flourishing human life, whether that notion of moderation and respecting the limits of human activities um, might at least call into question the um, kind of immediate justification for for um, for kind of eating for eating animals, say, or for kind of using natural resources to an unlimited extent. Um, and this is again grounded in what it means to be a good human. Um, one thing I think that is interesting about this is that it's highly contextually sensitive. What the limit is, what it means to surpass <coughs> that limit, and kind of end up kind of a you know, in this in this excess moment of excess is going to vary according to the environmental, the climactic, probably the cultural modes of production. So it's not going to say even if we kind of use this as the inspiration for kind of restricting our consumption of natural resources, it's never going to say that a certain class of um, natural beings are kind of off the table. It's going to ask in every context what is necessary for. Um, a reasonably good human life, and to what extent do we need to use these things? Um, and so I think that's, um, rather than a defect, I want to suggest that there is something at least um, both plausible about that and also attractive about that, because it allows for precisely the kind of sensitivity to geographic, temporal, cultural, climactic variation that seems to often kind of like trip up discourses about um, the treatment of non-human animals in particular. And I think about the ways in which, um, you know, kind of, I think probably less so academic thinking, but certainly kind of political campaigns against animal cruelty end up kind of, to some extent, kind of really kind of um, erasing the kind of real distinctions between um, between the modes in which non-human animals might be used in different contexts. So, I mean, in the Canadian context, certainly, kind of like the the way in which um, 
indigenous communities and activists, I think, have been very rightly um, skeptical and highly critical of the way that animal rights organizations focus on the seal hunt, um, which obviously kind of emerges from a totally different, not only cultural, but geographical context, um, is a kind of case in point. But this is something that, you know, maybe um, really in different times and place necessary in other times and place, the analogous exploitation of, of non-human non animals is going to look very different. So I think that's actually worth taking seriously as an attractive feature of a, of a kind of environmental and animal ethics. Um, the second source for a kind of Aristotelian um, ethics of nature is this, he kind of has a critique not just of going beyond limits generally, but of excessive human pleasure and of greed generally. And the pleasures that Aristotle thinks are particularly problematic and are kind of paradigmatic um, examples of human, um, human consumption, human um, activity going awry have to do, as they often do, with food and sex. Um, I think that these are perhaps kind of um, much more culturally specific, but he really, so I just put this up here. It's kind of out of out of interest. I'm not going to talk a lot about it. I'm going to wrap up. Um, but so the ancient Greek world had, rather than our kind of like two-part division into food and drink, um, tended to divide what was consumed um, at meals into like three parts. On the one hand, you have something called sitos, which is kind of basically um, the stuff that you get 90% of your caloric intake from like bread, porridge, little like oat cakes, maybe some green vegetables, but it's basically kind of like grain-based things. On the other hand, you have opson. The third thing is drink, wine usually. And you have opson, which is basically like a garnish and includes everything else. So most sources of protein, this includes like olives, um, it includes cheese, it includes salt even sometimes. Um, so it's a very, very kind of heterogeneous category. It's everything that is not this caloric base and crucially, it's the place where fish and meat are exclusively consumed in the ancient Greek context. Um, and so already, as kind of cultural background, there's an assumption that animal products belong to this, if not superfluous, because people, writers, tend to think that we do actually need to, you know, kind of it's, it would be really, um, it would be really kind of bad, and largely because it would be unpleasant um, not to have any of these things. But they belong to this much more superfluous and less essential non-staple category. And Aristotle, certainly when he critiques, um, when he makes a critique of greed and gluttony, um, is going to talk not just about kind of like overeating and having too much sex, um, but he's going to talk specifically about eating too much of the second category, too much opson, too much kind of of this um, of this decorative component, which kind of indirectly ends up saying, you know, eating too much meat among other things. Um, now, how far this translates outside of the ancient Greek context, I'm going to leave kind of hanging as a question. I'm going to leave that hanging for two reasons. One, because this division is not one with which we work, maybe we should, but we don't tend to think of like food as falling into these two categories. And second, because the critique of kind of, if we want to use the term gluttony, 
seems like one that is, um, you know, of Aristotle's ethics are obviously profoundly generative, whether or not his critique of gluttony as such, as a kind of vicious disposition, is one that we want to adopt. And I haven't really gone into what, why that's generated, but just I want to leave that as a kind of um, assertion. You know, whether that's, whether we want to say that kind of wanting too much food and sex, they may be bad for you. It may be bad to eat too much unhealthy food, but whether we want to say that that's a kind of moral or ethical failing, I think is a very open question. And that's going to impact to what extent this material, this critical um, aspect of Aristotle's philosophy is useful to us. Um, okay, I want to leave that there. I want to leave some room for questions. Obviously, I've gone through a lot of material. I'm happy both to talk about the kind of details of Aristotle, um, for those of you who know Aristotle well, I'm sure this like feels um, very, very rushed and like there's a lot of argumentative stuff I'm skipping over. For those of you that don't know Aristotle well, I hope that it's not kind of like too bewilderingly, just like throwing one thing out after another. But yeah, I hope that I hope that at least there's a kind of um, provocation for ethical thinking that we can find in this. Um, and that's really the kind of the overall pitch I'm trying to make is that there's real, really interesting material here for thinking about human, non-human relationships, um, even if it's not something that we're going to kind of take on board entirely, even if these these claims are not ones that we're just kind of going to adopt and say, that, like, Aristotle tells us how we should treat animals, or Aristotle tells us how we should relate to um, the natural world more generally. but. Nonetheless, I do think it kind of raises some really interesting questions in a way that is um, less familiar than contemporary modes of theorizing. Um, okay, I'll leave it there.